HIV AIDS has reached an existential moment. As COVID-19 continues to pose geopolitical risks, there is a threat that the progress made over the past 40 years in the fight to end the AIDS pandemic will be undone. COVID-19 has exacerbated social and economic inequalities, placed further stress on weak health systems, and highlighted the urgent need to strengthen global health security. In managing these dual pandemics, the global health community must adapt, protect, and integrate approaches to sustain momentum toward ending HIV-AIDS while continuing to respond to COVID-19. In this podcast, we speak to experts, community leaders, and people living with HIV about the progress toward reaching the new targets outlined in the 2021 Political Declaration on HIV and AIDS, the current geopolitical climate, why it is important to continue prioritizing HIV-AIDS, and what can be done to strengthen health security in low- and middle-income countries. This is AIDS Existential Moment. I'm Jeff Sturgio, Senior Associate at the Global Health Policy Center for CSIS. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Matt Cavanaugh, Deputy Executive Director for Policy Advocacy and Knowledge at UNAIDS, where he's responsible for the organization's work to advance policy, law, and political change to end the AIDS pandemic. This is one of a series of podcasts in which we're exploring what needs to be done to end the AIDS epidemic, both globally and domestically. Matt Cavanaugh has worked internationally for more than 20 years at the intersection of global health, politics, law, and comes to the UNAIDS on secondment from Georgetown University in the United States, where he holds faculty appointments in international health and law and is a director at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law. A political scientist by training with a long history of work in global health policy, Matt has lived and worked in North America, Africa, and Asia, conducting research and supporting policy change, including as a visiting researcher at the University of Johannesburg's Institute for Advanced Constitutional, Human Rights, and International Law, and South Africa's Freedom of Expression Institute. Prior to his academic positions, he led transnational policy efforts at non-governmental organizations in the United States and Southern Africa focused on HIV and tuberculosis treatment, international trade, and water rights. His research has appeared in The Lancet, Foreign Policy, the Journal of the American Medical Association, Health and Human Rights, and other leading journals, and he's been interviewed widely for outlets such as the New York Times, the Mail and Guardian, the Wall Street Journal, the BBC, Al Jazeera, and Science Magazine. He holds a PhD in political science from the University of Pennsylvania and a certificate in health law from Penn, a master's in communities and policy from Harvard University, and a BA from Vassar College. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that very generous and long introduction. Thanks, Jeff. Sure. UNAIDS recently issued its Global AIDS Update, which showed a mixed picture in progress against the AIDS pandemic. The situation is so worrying, due in part to the continuing social and economic shocks from the COVID pandemic and the Ukraine war, that UNAIDS titled the report In Danger. While the number of people living with HIV who are benefiting from antiretroviral treatment is now 28.7 million, or roughly 75% of the total people living with HIV globally, that still leaves a gap of nearly 10 million people without access to treatment. And while the number of new infections is still declining globally, progress is slowing and more troubling in some regions like Eastern Europe and Central Asia, the Middle East and North Africa and Latin America, we're seeing increases in annual HIV infections. That's going in the wrong direction. And within 
within each region, there are differences in how different populations are affected by HIV AIDS. There's still one and a half million new HIV infections each year and 650,000 deaths from AIDS, which means that the HIV pandemic still takes roughly one life each minute, and there's still 4,000 new infections every day around the world. Those numbers are significantly off track if the world hopes to achieve the goal of ending the AIDS pandemic by 2030. But at the same time, these are problems that can be solved. We have an increasing number of tools to fight HIV AIDS, and we know what solutions work. So why don't we start, Matt, with what are some of those new tools and recent breakthroughs in HIV AIDS treatment and prevention? Thanks, Jeff. The question right now on the science of HIV is just one of the most exciting things that's actually happening. You, you talked about the UN AIDS report, and, and we're very worried about the trends that are happening. But we're very optimistic about the science that's happening, which makes for the very kind of split personality understanding of what's going on in HIV. You know, the science has never been better. We now have breakthrough new medicines. For example, you know, just at the Montreal AIDS conference, the World Health Organization came out with a recommendation for long-acting pre-exposure prophylaxis, right? It's using ART, uh, kind of the same drugs that are stopping people from dying of HIV, to also stop the transmission. We've rolled out PrEP around the world through a tablet form, and it's been effective for some, but it's turned out that many people don't do well when taking a pill every day for prevention. Now we've got the opportunity for a once every two month injection. You know, right now about 40 million people around the world are getting an injection to prevent pregnancy. And so, you know, those kind of same people might well benefit from something that's an injection to stop HIV transmission. And actually just this week, the European Union approved uh, lenacapavir, one that would be a once every six month injection that could be used for treatment and prevention. So the kind of science pieces are remarkable. And, and that's just a few, right? We've got a lot of really good science that's happening right now, but we still don't have a cure and we still don't have a vaccine. The news on that is quite good. We've made remarkable progress. You mentioned the kind of 28 million people that are on ARVs. I remember not very long ago where it was hugely, you know, kind of controversial to imagine that we could get anywhere near that number. And now it's kind of taken as just, you know, a passing nice thing that we've reached 75% of all people around the world with treatment. So the science is really good, but this question of who's in that 25%, who doesn't have access, the trends actually on new infections are still quite worrying. And also another thing that's had an impact over the last couple of years has been the COVID-19 pandemic, which has had an effect on achieving HIV epidemic control. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the implications of COVID-19 were for the work on HIV? So we're, we're very concerned. At this point, what we're seeing is despite this remarkable science, despite having prevention tools and treatment tools that keep people alive, what we're seeing is, is a really worrying trend, which is in many countries around the world, you see, you know, really good progress, but in far too many, you're seeing reversals of progress, right? So the trends are really worrying. You mentioned Asia Pacific. This is a region where, you know, slowly, not sufficiently, new infections have been going down. But now for the first time, we report that in 2021, new infections rose. Now, we have 2025 targets that are about achieving downward trends that are really substantial in new infections. We've got to turn off the tap. We've got to bend the curves. And so the entire global strategy rests on the idea that we can prevent new infections that each year we'll have fewer than we had before. Well, now in Latin America, in the Middle East and North Africa, and now in Asia Pacific, we're seeing increases. And that's places like the Philippines, right, where you're seeing rising new infections. It's places like Brazil, where you're seeing rapid rising new infections. And in East and Southern Africa, where we had been seeing kind of very substantial decreases, now we're seeing far slower decreases in new infections. That is significantly down to COVID-19, economic crisis, and now the war in Ukraine. Because what that's done is it's had a series of kind of political, economic, financial, and then also programmatic interruptions. On the kind of political front, 
we had been in a moment when we were racing toward what we hoped would be a trajectory toward the end of AIDS. And there was a substantial amount of political will behind that. You had heads of state showing up to do that. But this second pandemic, the collision with COVID-19 has been hugely distracting when it comes to kind of the, the political agenda. And there's maybe just not space for multiple pandemics all at once. And now we're facing that. We also saw financial pieces. Increasingly, countries prior to COVID-19 had been taking on the task of paying for their own HIV responses. Countries had been really rising to that to that response. And countries that are donor countries to the Global Fund and to PEPFAR and places like that had been keeping steady with some decreases, but we were hopeful that we could get the finances where it needed to be. Now, the World Bank estimates that in countries with about half of the HIV in the world, those countries are going to face declining revenues that are really substantial. They're going to face debt crises ahead that are are 170% of what they're spending on all of their social spending. And in that context, in 2021, we saw for the first time a sustained decline in investments by countries that are high burden countries in their own AIDS response. And that's down to COVID-19. And so we're at the point in the epidemic where we can't afford political distractions, economic distractions. And then finally, we can't afford the situation that happened, which is those same health workers who were doing HIV that's who was mobilized to fight COVID-19. It's those same laboratories that were mobilized to fight COVID-19. Now, the good news, I think, is that in some places, that was actually hugely effective. It turned out that actually having those HIV mechanisms that could fight a pandemic, those were exactly what was mobilized to fight COVID-19. And in places like South Africa, and in fact, much of the African mm -hmm. continent, you saw that really effectively fighting COVID-19. But what we didn't see was a huge new investment in the health workers that were needed, or a huge new investment in the laboratories that were needed. And so it ended up being robbing Peter to pay Paul, and now we're very worried about how do we get back on track. This is actually something I wanted to come to later in the, the podcast, but what uh, you've raised it now and it, it intrigues me. I know you wrote a paper a couple of years ago about the political economy of, of HIV. What you did was look at the factors in countries that make some countries actually early adopters of uh, effective measures to address HIV AIDS and other countries, which may be at the same economic level and have similar political systems, uh, actually don't adopt. And so, you know, we've seen those tensions and those differences uh, exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, as you were just saying. But, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, from your point of view as a political scientist, why is it that some countries don't adopt policies that reflect scientific consensus and others do? And then how does that change under tensions that are caused by other crises coming along? It's so interesting, right? Because we started off and, and your great question about kind of where are we on science gives this very optimistic picture. But we know that science doesn't implement itself. And this is where it comes down to the countries that are making the most progress are those countries that have a really positive policy environment where the kind of best science is being turned into the political will enacted through governments to ensure that science actually reaches people. And what we see globally is that there's a big difference when it comes to countries. And so some countries have a history of picking things up and moving quickly, and other countries really don't. And that's a really interesting kind of challenge. I think there's a couple of things. One is kind of imagine, and we've heard a ton of this in COVID, that right, if only we could depoliticize public health. But I think that's actually a wrong way to understand it. There is no such thing as depoliticized public health. The kind of wonderful clinician, Dr. Linda Gale Becker from South Africa at the Montreal AIDS Conference, she kind of put it really well. And she said, look, AIDS has never been depoliticized. The question is, is it good politics or bad politics? And so you see places like South Africa, where mm. she's from, the United States as well, other places where what you see is really deeply divisive contexts where you've got racial inequalities, you've got kind of class inequalities, you've got those deep inequalities, and those can either translate into othering 
and where you've got governments that say, ah, oh, we're going to blame, or it can translate into we're going to address that mm-hmm. full frontal. And so you've got countries that have actually kind of bridged over some of those divides. The United States kind of went through a period in the past of deep inequalities that drove the AIDS pandemic here in the United States. Why do we have the epidemic we have in the United States right now? It's because the early responses to HIV were characterized by homophobia and by racism and by thinking about things like, you know, blaming Haitians and blaming homosexuals and that. And that led to the response we have today. Now, the United States has since bridged that. And it actually gives a really interesting lesson here, which is you need diverse responses. You need to think proactively about what good politics looks like, like bringing together the various factions. And so we can see, for example, in Brazil, who has actually had early on had a remarkable response to, Mm -hmm. to HIV and mobilized kind of folks from a variety of different factors, a variety of different political responses, and really mobilized a very political response to AIDS, but one that was very positive, that actually ensured that actually black Brazilians did not have less access early on than white Brazilians. But that's turned around. And so recently what we've seen is a politics of blame and a kind of much more divisive politics in places like Brazil. And that's actually resulted in very directly interrupting the AIDS response. And so now what you see is actually rising inequalities. Black gay Brazilians have far higher rates of HIV than white Brazilians in a way that they didn't used to. And that's down to a politics that shifted to blame. And when that's the way the response goes. To me, this is a lesson that politics is not unknowable. You can actually say, okay, these are countries that need this kind of a response. And you can engage that way. And if you do so, you can actually make remarkable progress. Why have so many countries that criminalize gay men, that criminalize sex work, that criminalize all sorts of things, also adopted remarkable policies that actually are responsive to their needs? Well, that's because somebody's done some good politics. They've been intentional about how to approach power. Let's stay with that. I mean, when you and I first met each other, I was working for a large pharmaceutical company and you were an AIDS activist. So it's true. But I think the kinds of perspectives that you were just talking about are some of the things you were working on in, in those days. So what I wanted to ask you was, you've written also that AIDS is, has been as much as a political condition as a medical one from the outset. And so what are some of the principles of good practical politics that lead to policies that actually help with the AIDS response? And what are some of the things that countries should avoid that we know don't lead to good outcomes? So there's a few. And it's interesting, right? Because as you said, when, when you and I first met, we were on opposite sides of tables, right? What's so interesting is, I think, you know, in many ways, that led to different outcomes in different places. But where, for example, governments played their role and companies played their role and faith leaders played their role and AIDS activists played their role, what you ended up with was not papering over the questions, but instead having to confront them. And the vibrant civil society, you can tell stories of what it pushed on your end. From where I sit, vibrant civil society actually pushed to ensure that we got access to the best technologies around the world. Today, the fact that the medicines patent pool exists means that you've got companies putting their intellectual property into a pool and ensuring that in a few years, you move from a really effective medicine to having that medicine roll out around the world on HIV. That hasn't happened on everything. So that's in part down to a civil society that's brought to the table. And so one of the key factors, and we see this again and again and again, is that kind of openness and the vibrancy of civil society and the policies that enable civil society to do everything from voicing their concerns to also providing services, those end up being transformative because then you actually reach people. And what's so interesting to me is that that's also what works in in pandemics writ large. 
there's been this kind of back and forth around, oh, kind of we're concerned that democracy is bad for pandemic response because you've seen the experience in China of locking down and whether or not that was hugely effective versus elsewhere. But what you also see is that it has been in democracies, places where there's vibrant civil society and other places where you actually see engagement with communities that's actually kept death rates low, that's ensured more equitable responses. And so there's really a tension here about that and kind of a politics that that really can drive good pandemic response or or bad pandemic response. Well, I'm glad you raised the role of communities because I think that is one of the differentiating factors when you look at how the political environment has evolved in certain countries that have faced the challenge of a generalized AIDS epidemic. The countries in which you'd had strong community response and in which governments actually listened to and were willing to learn from what the communities were doing, that you've you've ended up with better outcomes. You know, maybe when you go back to being a political scientist, you'll study that some more. You can actually document it. But I, I think that that certainly is true. And I think one of the aspects of having strong community response and governments and other stakeholders being able to learn from that is that kind of constructive dialogue that you alluded to really does lead to change. I mean, certainly in my own experience when I was working with a large pharmaceutical company, you know, it was important for us to listen to what people were telling us. And that did lead to reflection and changes in policies that had a big impact over time. The medicines patent pool, that that evolved over the course of about 15 or 20 years. And it went from a number of companies just being adamantly opposed to the very idea of having that kind of a patent pool to some of the leading companies who are now very actively involved in the HIV response also being leading partners in, in the medicines patent pool. And that's really changed the landscape in important ways. I think that's exactly right. And I think there's a kind of national government piece there, right, that says, look, We know that it's sometimes threatening. We know that it's messy. We know that those kind of politics are complicated, but it actually leads to better pandemic response because where you see communities able to reach people prevents those people, especially the marginalized, from going underground, from being especially in an infectious disease, from having high rates of transmission, but nobody notices. It prevents governments from missing whole sections of the community that are actually affected. And it's also worth noting that that same thing is true on the global scale. One of the things that has happened in HIV that I think has been remarkable is the creation of the Global Fund and other places where a lot of these battles have played out, where there's a, a structural requirement that civil society from the North, civil society from the South, implementing partners sit alongside governments from the North and governments from the South, sit alongside the private sector and the private foundations and actually have some of these debates. And it's been bruising and it's been complicated. But you know what? When they happen, they result in far better global health policies. And I say that because I'm worried about some of the other places where during COVID, we haven't seen that be a guiding principle of the response. You've seen actually far less engagement, meaningful engagement of civil society folks. And it means that some mistakes I think were made that were entirely avoidable, that we actually in HIV have been able to have those arguments and fights and information has come out that would not otherwise come out that helps decision makers to make good decisions to say, ah, I don't like what you're telling me, but you're right that actually that's information I didn't have that you've brought to me from the community and therefore I can make a different kind of decision that's going to be more effective. That's what we need in global health writ large. And so as I look forward to the pandemic response pieces, to kind of how is the SIF and the FIF and all of these pieces going to work, I think to myself, are we learning that lesson that actually bringing everybody to the table, multi-sectoral voting blocks that are actually able to move things, they don't make things move faster, but they do make things move more effectively. And I think we really have to learn that lesson from HIV. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Let's go back to another question that you raised before. And also, again, you wrote recently in the African Journal of AIDS Research 
to end AIDS and COVID-19 and inequalities. So that's, uh, that's a pretty clear statement. So elaborate on that a little bit. What are some of the inequalities that we see and how do those affect the response to HIV AIDS? So it's really interesting. We in HIV have for many years focused on this question of kind of big global targets. And we did that because you'll remember the times when it was essentially declared that it was not possible to get ARVs to people in Africa. It was too hard. It was all sorts of kind of tropes that was just not possible. And what we in the AIDS community said is we said, no, it has to happen. It must happen. It can happen in the global north. It can happen in the global south. And then along came the three by five initiative, which was three million people on treatment by 2005. We didn't hit that target, but it changed the imagination of what was possible. And then along the way, we set 90, 90, 90 targets at the UN. We said, OK, the goal there is that 90 percent of people will know their status. 90 percent of those will be on treatment. 90 percent of those will be virally suppressed, meaning we care enough about people and about the AIDS response to say not just are people on treatment, but is it working? And everyone said, oh, God, that can't possibly happen. Well, you know what just happened is that actually Botswana just announced that they've reached 95, 95, 95, which is just remarkable. That is such progress. And that's gotten us a long way. But we're not on track. Even before COVID, the reality was that we had multiple times more new infections than any of the projections had us at had we achieved our goal. We did a report a little while ago that showed on the current trajectory we're on, we're facing about 7.7 million deaths in the next 10 years from AIDS. So what's going on there? What do we do differently? And our point is the thing we can do differently is we can stop measuring ourselves by these kind of aggregate goals. How many people are on treatment? And start asking ourselves, well, what's the difference between groups? If the difference is wide, then you're probably not making the progress you need. If the difference is small, you probably are. We did an interesting study that's not been published yet, but that hopefully will come out soon, that looked at wealth quintiles. And it said, okay, what's the difference between the treatment coverage by wealth quintiles, but also the prevalence by wealth quintiles? And what we found is that those countries that have done the best, the Botswanas, the Lesotho's, the Malawis, those are countries where the gap between the rich and the poor when it comes to viral suppression or when it comes to prevalence is tiny. It's indistinguishable. We've done such a remarkable job in the AIDS response and these country leadership has done such a remarkable job that actually the effect of being the richest and being the poor is, is not distinguishable in that. Those are the countries that are actually seeing rapid declines in new infections. But in other places, you see big, big gaps. So I look at Haiti, I look at Brazil, I look at the Philippines, I look at these places, and there you've got big, big gaps where the urban poor sometimes have three, four, five times the prevalence of the urban non-poor. And where that exists, that's where we're driving new infections. Even if we reach 90, 90, 90, even if we reach the number of people on treatment, if the people having the most sex, if the people doing the most drugs, if the people experiencing transmission are not reached, then no big global target's going to reach it. So we need to think about kind of how is our geography, how is our, our income level, and then how's our key population status, our men who have sex with men, our, key, our sex work people who inject drugs, are they having the same success as others are having? Because we've got examples like San Francisco, London, where being a gay man in those places, the risk of HIV has plummeted. So it's not just being a gay man in the world that matters. It's actually where. And so in these wealthy cities, the risk of HIV has plummeted for gay men. But the same thing hasn't happened in Sao Paulo. The same thing hasn't happened in Johannesburg. And so those gaps are where we need to focus next. And our theory is we're off track now. But if what we can do is say, all right, the haves, if you will, the haves are showing us that actually what's possible, which is remarkable. Like many people now are living lives with HIV where they're not worried about death. And many communities that used to have high HIV rates, they're not worried about HIV anymore. Well, let's get everybody to there. And if we focus on those gaps, that's how we actually get ourselves back on track. Yeah, and, and those gaps are still substantial as in the Global AIDS report, as you alluded to. I mean, for instance, 
Last year, the global risk of HIV in, among men who have sex with men was 28 times the risk of acquiring HIV for people of the same age and gender. And for injecting drug users, it was 35 times the risk. For sex workers, 30 times the risk. For transgender women, 14 times the risk. Those are really remarkable in inequalities and different risk profiles. You know, so what you're saying is that we have to take that seriously now. And instead of just looking at global targets, let's actually understand. Actually, this goes back to what UNAIDS had focused on some years ago when back in the 90s, uh, you know, the three ones, which was, first of all, know the epidemic in each individual context, and then a one coordinated strategy, one coordinated data source, and really one coordinated agency so that you've got really a, a concerted effort, not all kinds of random interventions that don't add up to more than some of the parts. So in a way, you're saying we have to just get rededicate ourselves to that notion that the AIDS epidemic is not one global pandemic. I mean, it is, but it's actually the urban poor and people in rural areas and different risk groups. And we have to take that epidemiology seriously in planning interventions. I think that's exactly right. And the core of this, right, is this idea that if you know what the gaps are, because those doing well show you, and in every country we've got folks who are doing well, we're no longer in the context where entire countries don't have access to ARVs or where the HIV rate is just out of control in all parts of all countries. And instead, what you have is every country has got a group that's doing well, and then they've got a group that's been missed and multiple groups that have been missed. And often it's those intersections. And so, as I was saying, it's not all gay men worldwide. It's especially gay men living in poverty in urban areas, the urban poor, and then the urban poor among gay men are facing some of the highest risks in the world. Why? Well, that's because we haven't actually gone in and figured out what are the interventions. But that's not true around the world. You can look at places like Thailand. In Thailand, what you see is rapidly declining new infections because there have been really substantial efforts to get harm reduction programs, to get programs that really work and are led by communities into many of the key populations, to sex workers, to people who inject drugs. And what you've seen is it works. So we've got a set of programmatic responses that we know if we build them. And it's interesting. In some ways, I entirely agree with you. It's about kind of one response and one strategy that knows the epidemic. On the other hand, what it actually says is we probably need a very tailored response, which is, hey, for whom is the AIDS response working really well right now? What are the contexts about them? And then how do you shift it to reach those who are not? And if we measure success by how small are your gaps? Well, OK, maybe men who have sex with men have twice the rate of HIV than everybody else. But boy, that'd be way better than 28 times the risk. And so that's where we want to get to. And you do have diversity across the world on that. The other group is adolescent girls and young women in sub-Saharan Africa who face about three times the risk of acquiring HIV as their boys and men of the same age. Well, why is that? That's not about anything besides structural challenges that ensure that actually young women have less power in negotiating sex and also often have less power when it comes to accessing services. But there are interventions that work. And so what we're saying is, look, if you have an inequality approach, if you look at who's affected, but not just on a global scale, to your point, right, it's not about like, oh, I read in the UNAIDS report that globally this group has 28 times, but it's saying, well, what's actually happening in my city or in my area? And is it actually kind of how do we build interventions? that will work. That's the key. And if we do that, if we actually focus on reducing those risks, we may never eliminate inequalities. Our rhetoric here is not when we reach social and economic justice everywhere, then we end AIDS. That's probably true, but we're not waiting for that. But there's active ways that we can actually intervene that actually matter.
Yeah, well, actually, one of the most interesting things you said, Matt, is that countries where there are countries like Botswana is one where whether you're rich or poor doesn't really matter much when it comes to whether you have access to HIV treatment and, and other interventions. That's even more remarkable because just think of all the other places in the world and other contexts in which economic inequality is something that we live with every day. The world is always going to be that way. But what you're arguing is that despite all of that, we can take a look at what's driving HIV infection in places and design programs tailored to the actual problems that you're facing in different contexts. And we know that that's actually effective from examples around the world. So what I wanted to turn to was just ask you, well, what are some of the cities and some of the other places where there is tremendous progress? I and mean, we mentioned Botswana, which everybody was talking about in Montreal just a couple of weeks ago at the International AIDS Conference, because the reason, just to remind our listeners that that is so remarkable, is that 20 years ago, Botswana had something like 40% of adults in Botswana were HIV positive. And the president at the time, Festus Mohai, was saying that this was an existential crisis for the country that, you know, and here it is just 20 some years later, and essentially everyone who's HIV positive is on treatment. And if you look at maternal fetal transmission, for instance, it was two out of five babies were being born HIV positive. Now it's less than 1%. Those are, are really remarkable changes that were the outcome of the kinds of interventions you've been talking about. So where else are we seeing that kind of tremendous progress in, in fighting HIV? Yeah, and we have kind of good examples in a wide variety of places. So one to look at it is really kind of the countries where the U.S. president's emergency plan for AIDS relief has been really active alongside the Global Fund, alongside national governments, have made some of the most remarkable progress. Botswana is one of the examples, but Eswatini is another one. You know, you've got tiny little countries that have shown remarkable political leadership and remarkable partnership and shown results that were not possible elsewhere. But it's not just that. It's also Nigeria. Nigeria last year had some of the most remarkable declines in new infections in the world. And that's because of a set of interventions and a set of strategies that took seriously the epidemic they had. Said, okay, we know that there is rising new infections in this, this, and this region. We're going to flood that region with services, but we're also going to build up community-led services. This has been a key piece. You mentioned the Botswana example. I started off by talking about the kind of law and policy environment. Well, if you look at Botswana, they've done almost all of the things that they could possibly could. They've made it possible for community groups to provide services at the local level, and community groups have. They've had remarkable human rights interventions that have actually made it possible for people, as you said previously, it's not that human rights violations don't ever happen. It's actually that when they do, how do we respond to it? Is it something that actually brings people into services or that drives them away? And in Botswana, they've built up a kind of whole network of remarkable NGOs, but a responsive government, too, that's done that. Some of those shifts have also started in parts of Nigeria, and that's really made a big difference. In South Africa, the same, same way. And then you've got places like Thailand, but Thailand's one of the remarkable examples in Asia because what they've done is actually use a mix of structural interventions where they've said, well, we're going to change laws, but we're also going to create programming that is led by communities that gets inside communities. And that's been a shift over time. There was a time, for example, when the Thai response to drugs was hugely punitive. That was their approach. And it was it was about locking people up and it was about forced rehabilitation and those things. And when that happened, what we saw was rising rates of HIV. And they pulled back from that and they substituted a human rights and, and a harm reduction approach. And what that's done is enable communities to actually stand up and build services that work for people. And that has actually led to the remarkable progress that Thailand has made. And so we do have a few really clear examples of where we can kind of move. And to your point previously, it's not that we want to wait forever for it to happen, but it is that we can have structural change. 
Where you see declining inequality, you also see more effective response to AIDS. And so we do have to keep these big macro questions in mind, which is to say, how do we shift the macro environment? We're not waiting for it to be perfect. We're not waiting for it to kind of be just and equitable everywhere. But where we move toward more equity, we actually see better pandemic response. Now, it's not particularly helpful to say, hey, when you reduce inequality, you're better at responding to pandemics. But it's true. We should reduce inequality for lots of reasons. But it's also true that it actually makes societies more effective at responding to pandemics because you see less of the othering. You see less of the it's not my problem. Just worry about them. You see less of the some people will float over here in a bubble and not be affected by the pandemic. And that's true in AIDS, but it's also true in COVID. It's true in monkeypox right now. It's true in kind of writ large. That's an important insight. And it's something that I think, you know, as we think about the public policy changes that we'd like to see, we have to keep in mind that AIDS is not just a medical problem. It's not just a scientific problem. It's also a political problem. It's also a social and economic problem. And so we need to keep in mind the kinds of insights that you've just been mentioning. The last thing I, I wanted to get to is ultimately it all comes down to money because to address the kinds of questions that we've been talking about requires resources. One of the other findings in the global AIDS report was that the global budget for fighting the AIDS pandemic is now there's a gap of something like eight or nine billion dollars a year to really have the resources required to address these questions adequately around the world. And also within that, UNAIDS could probably use more resources to be able to take these kinds of lessons and make sure that people are aware of them and, and are able to apply them around the world. So what do you think the prospects are for sustaining the AIDS response over the next 10 years? I mean, I, I have to say that I'm worried because we are, as you said, in a point where there's a gap that's very substantial. But also it's a drop in the bucket. The amounts of money we're talking about here are tiny in the global economy, are tiny in the budgets of wealthy nations. This is deeply achievable amounts of money. And so it really is about kind of political will and, and how do we move things. But it is entirely true that without more money and without more resources, both from countries that are highly impacted by HIV and from countries that are wealthy and able to pay, we will not achieve the end, end of AIDS. We've seen declining resources at the time when the work is the hardest. John Nkengasong, who's the new Global AIDS coordinator, really kind of says this well when he says, look, the end of every outbreak is always the hardest part. Whether you're talking about a kind of local outbreak of a disease or you're talking about a pandemic, well, we've now fought the disease to where 75% of people have access. But those 25% of people don't have access just because they've never heard of AIDS or because, you know, we just didn't remember to get to them. It's because there are structural challenges that make it hard for those folks to get access. And they're underserved in a variety of ways. It's not just about HIV. And so that is where we're going to need more money, not less. Now, I do think that the core question is going to be, what is the global politics of pandemics in the near term? I think we have kind of two ways to think about it. One is we can kind of move back in a way that I think is really possible and really damaging toward a much more nationalistic and populistic way of thinking about the world in which we think about global health security as how quickly can we put up borders? How quickly can we detect a disease in our backyard? And that's all we care about. Now, that has not worked. And that has been an epic failure during COVID-19. And so my hope is that the world leaders are starting to take that seriously. And you hear some of them beginning to, to say, okay, that's not the way in which we're going to, to achieve success. Some of the most remarkable insights are coming from the African continent, where the AU has been the example of multilateral engagement that's been really effective. 
And so if I were, you know, around, I might look to the African continent and say, wow, how are you figuring out how to have multilateral collaboration there? And it's about not fighting between the United States and China, but instead figuring out where there are kind of points of solidarity. It's about also not kind of letting the Europe versus the United States piece come into play in quite that way, but instead saying we need global public goods. And if we think about it that way, then one of the things we know is that ending the AIDS pandemic is actually many of those same things that we need more of to end the AIDS pandemic is exactly what we need more of to prevent the next outbreak from becoming a pandemic. And I think if we can get there, then we can talk about the kinds of money we need. Because then $8 billion a year, much of which is going to be borne by low and middle income countries, they are also going to pay more and that's going to be required. But also if high income countries can come to the table, there's the possibility there, right? And so you've got the global fund replenishment that's coming in September. We're going to find out, does the world step up and put $18 billion behind the global fund? That's a 30% increase. And it's an increase that has to happen. And it's going to be kind of measure of the first success, I hope, in an approaching this pandemic in a different way. We've also got a wide variety of other pandemic response mechanisms, several of which could help give the money that's needed to fight AIDS and also prep for other things. Healthcare workers we've seen over and over again are not single use entities. You build a community health response and that community health response helps you fight COVID. It helps stop monkeypox. It helps fight AIDS. And so that $8 billion includes things that are multi-use. And so I do see a way in which if the global fund is fully funded, if we see a response to PEPFAR that stepped up, if we see increases in funding to kind of pandemic response that's actually built on stopping the epidemics of today as well as those in the future. And then, yes, if you see a bit more money to UNAIDS, which also has a pretty significant financial gap, although it's, it's tiny compared to others, I think we can get there. But that is, I think it's going to be political. How do we frame pandemics? And if we frame it in the right way, I think we can get there. That's an optimistic point of view. It's probably a good place for us to end today's conversation. But I think you're absolutely right about the importance of investing in in more global public goods. And what people don't realize about public goods is that if you create them, they benefit everybody. The notion that we should have a nationalistic approach to global health security is just the opposite of what you would end up with if you invested in global public goods. You'd have a circumstance in which everybody would be better protected, everybody would benefit when new crises come. But I'm glad that in the role that you play at UNAIDS, that you do have an optimistic outlook, Matt, because that's... Uh, maybe, maybe I have to. It's uh, That's the question. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's possible. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. This has really been a very lively and, and fascinating conversation. So we really appreciate your joining us today. So glad to be here. What an interesting conversation. Thanks. Thank you for listening to AIDS Existential Moment. To learn more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV-AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page.